bitch, please. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 10. Yay. We have a very special treat for you guys today. We interviewed the two co-founders, Samantha and Morgan Elias of The Vintage Twin. They have a really cool operation based out of New York City. They have three stores where they rework a bunch of awesome vintage pieces and, you know, people like, I guess, Bella Hadid and a bunch of different influencers of the sort wear their clothes. And they're two sisters who've built a really cool brand from the ground up. Yeah, they have 117,000 Instagram followers. And a big portion of their business comes from social media, which we talked to them about. I actually went to college with Samantha. And then when I transferred colleges midway through, I became friends with Morgan. And so I kind of saw this business grow from like this tiny little idea they had to this like whole pretty impressive operation, which definitely makes me question what I've been doing with the past eight years of my life. But I think it's a really interesting interview. It is. We really just like we went to their office. They have this like massive basement with like tons and tons of inventory. Hannah and I scored free sweatshirts and we had a conversation and covered so many interesting things. Morgan lives with endometriosis and it took her a really long time to figure out her diagnosis. And she kind of thought she was just going crazy um, and didn't know what was going on. And we kind of unpack that and we talk about siblings working together and kind of figuring out how to complement each other with different skills, what it's like to work when you're pregnant and a new mother. What else, Hannah? Yeah, so it, it kind of just runs the gamut from, you know, starting your own business. And Samantha went to business school and she kind of tells us about the classes that she learned something from and, you know, all the classes that she really didn't learn anything from. And Morgan kind of covers her PR, social media kind of end of the business and I think it's really interesting just to hear their honest portray you know perspective on what it was like to grow this business and you can kind of learn some stuff too definitely especially because when you look on social media these business accounts they make it look easy but when you actually hear the voices of the people behind it you realize how much of a daily you know grind it is and they kind of spell it out for us and I learned a lot about what it's like to start my own business if I ever wanted to so I'm sure you will too yeah so I hope you guys enjoy it all right well we're really excited today we have the CEOs and founders of the vintage twin Samantha and Morgan Elias with us hey guys thanks for being here hey um so first we kind of want to just get into like just how the business started because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And How old were you guys when you started it? Talk about the evolution of it all. Sure. So we were 19 when we started it. I went to the University of Michigan after growing up on Long Island in like a super sheltered background. I had never, I didn't know what a thrift store was. I didn't know what vintage clothing was. And I went to Michigan and made a bunch of Michiganite friends and they took me my first Salvation Army and I was like oh my god 10 for 10 this is crazy (laughs) and like I've always been a very good shopper my sister and cousin used to like follow me around forever 21 because I was really good at like picking out what looked like very rich from all the crap um so I used that skill in Salvation Army 
um, and started wearing pretty much exclusively vintage clothes. Morgan was in Boston at the time, and I came back to New York that summer. She was an event photographer, and she was taking me out to all these like fancy schmancy nightclubs and events, and people stopped me every everywhere I went, but not like one or two times, oh my God, that top's so cute, like 10 times in a night. Where did you get It's like that? a trend of people just asking you. It, and it was too much to ignore, and it was every time I wore vintage clothing. It was like slapping us in the face. Mm-hmm. So it was really obvious, and this was almost 10 years ago when everyone was kind of giving in to fast fashion. Um, it wasn't like taboo anymore to shop at H&M and Forever 21 and Zara, no matter how wealthy you were. And I think everyone, the one thing in common, because all the outfits were so different, was that it was something different. It was obviously something unique. And these people from all different walks of life, men, women, young, old, gay, straight, wanted, they were all attracted to the same thing, and that's something no one else could get their hands on. So... We said, okay, let's do a t-shirt sale in mom's basement. Hannah, I don't think you were there, but that doesn't... You, you were, like, after we did that t-shirt sale, I took the inventory back to my dorm room, and Hannah, for sure, you shopped there. I think I bought maybe half of yeah. Samantha's actual closet <laughs> off of her physical body. Yeah. You're like, wait, I never saw this before. Right. And, and that's, that's how we started. I just was literally selling out of my closet. And then Hannah brought her roommates down, and I was selling out of my living room. And So were you finding t-shirts at the time at Salvation Army, or were you, like, looking around at estate sales? Like, where were you getting? Yeah. Okay. So I was, started expanding to estate sales, and it wasn't just t-shirts anymore. It was just whatever, like, I thought was cool. And right. I was personal. I was a personal stylist for these girls. I was dressing them. They weren't, like, touching the things on the racks. I just, I grew up, like, working in a clothing store that was totally service oriented where these families would come from New Jersey with three kids and spend $5,000 on a whole wardrobe. So I had experience dressing people up. Um, and that's what we did. Yeah. When she came back for the semester, um, she was marked the vintage twin as in the vintage of us too by my uncle who was like, you know, where's the vintage twin? Uh, yeah. And that the name was born. Oh, that's so funny. And then, so I remember, so then at what point, I know you set up the store in Michigan. Yeah, so that, that next summer in 2010, we did our first pop-up shop. And that's like kind of how we helped create this whole world of pop-up shops. Uh, we rented a loft on 34th Street. Uh, we did it for like three days. It was a huge success. And um, I went back to Michigan. I was living in a studio that next semester. And I said, look, I'm not turning my apartment I live alone now into a store this is scary Morgan I'm gonna open a store and she's like you're insane you're in business school you're not doing that like that's crazy you just adopted a dog and I said well I'm gonna do it so you can come or not you know but I my friends are gonna help me I came running and so then at so at this point like you didn't really have the doubts. Like, Morgan had the doubts, but you were just kind of like, why not? At that, point, at that point, it was a cash cow. Like, so we were doing something that worked. So, like, there was people a, wanted it. What was I going to send them away? Oh, sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. right like, it was already proven to be working. Right. There was a demand for it. Right. Like, my phone was blowing up. When can we come shop? So, 
And this was before you had an Instagram and even like a presence on social media? Instagram didn't exist. This This was like Facebook event status. Technically, Instagram existed, I think. No, not senior year it did, probably. Right, right. But 2012. But it was, I mean, we got our mom's basement full of people on a Facebook event. Okay. Yeah. So Facebook, I mean, from the beginning, social media has driven our business, which is, you know, not in any one place at any one time. And so, Morgan, at what point did you move to Michigan? Because you moved there to help with that store. That was in January 2012. So yep. that was like, I had the store open in Michigan for a whole year. We Post-graduation? No. Could, no. So we, oh, before graduation. Year, we had a 500-square-foot store, like, over the Zaz pizza place. Right. Then we grew out of it, so we moved over the only pharmacy on campus, Village Apothecary, and that was, like, 1,200 square feet, so right. that was, like, great real estate. Me and my friends and Morgan a little bit kept that open for, for about a year. And then I graduated a semester early, December 2011. Morgan and I moved back to Michigan in January 2012. We closed the store and we opened up a warehouse space so we could start building the website. And the website took two years longer than we thought it would. And mm-hmm. in the interim, we started doing what is now known as pop-up shops to stay alive. And then, at, Morgan, at what point was it like a, a conscious decision to start? Because you really, I feel like, took over the social media and like the PR and that aspect. Like, was it conscious or was it just kind of what you were doing? So I was studying photography at the time um, and I was doing more of like event photos and I wasn't really sure which route I was going to take it but knew that it was a definite hobby and I was shooting the pieces kind of lookbook style after Samantha was reworking them and whatnot. And I think between shooting them and... But from the beginning, like, you were always responsible for the social media. Like, you made that very first Facebook event when we did the store right. opening. You handled all the social around it. Right. That, sum- that summer that I had done a semester at Parsons... I made a bunch of relationships with random people and some of them, uh, you know, uh, sponsored the first trunk show with, you know, right, like the D- DJs. Yeah, the oh, DJs. Wow. <laughs> Our first trunk show okay. in Loft on 34th Street. Right. And like Svedka. So it, it, Svedka had like just come out. It but, like yeah. naturally, I guess, became my end, the people end. So you're good at, like, relationship building and yeah. sort of, like, building like an image. So. Yeah. We like to say I handle, Morgan handles the people and I handle the product and pretty much everything. See, that's what I need. I need a, I need a Morgan in my life. You need a Morgan. I'm right here. Morgan's right here. <laughs> so then how many stores do you guys have now? Okay, so basically we started doing pop-up shops. We did it once a month. And then we did two weeks out of the month. And then it turned into doing it all year and then we opened up a second location and we had the second location open for a little bit and now it's grown into three permanently popped up stores so we hold short-term leases in three locations and we have about 50 employees i remember loading the u-hauls like to get to the pop-up shops um it's really fun to see how legit it is now and how much you guys have grown into this like real business while I'm still in the exact same place. <laughs> well, these microphones are pretty full, so it doesn't look like the same place. But the truth is, Morgan understood the power of social media 
and the importance from the beginning. I'll never forget we had like we took all our savings from growing up and used pop-up shops and having the store open for a year and we invested it in this warehouse to hire like seven people full time to get thousands of products up on the website for this big launch that happened two years later. You know, at the time um, there wasn't any branded vintage online and still isn't other than, you know, Etsy and eBay where the stuff is shot on the floor. So anyway, that's what we were doing and being super frugal and we still are and Morgan at like seven o'clock one night we were just putting in crazy hours seven o'clock one night came to me and said there's this girl who like contacted us on Instagram Instagram was a thing by then by 2012 and no I still she, think it was a Facebook message whatever and she's a blogger TBT. and she's here visiting her brother and I want to go pick her up at the airport wait was this in Michigan yeah okay who can I send I said, Morgan, you are not spending an hour and 45 minutes of one of our employees' time to go pick up some blogger at the airport. That's ridiculous. And bloggers weren't even a thing at this point. Like, So who was that person? Danielle Bernstein of WeWore One. So, you know, she just started blogging, had not much of a following, and she was looking to kick it off. And right. So Morgan didn't listen to me and sent someone <laughs> to the airport and she came back and I said, I'm going home. Like it's nine o'clock. This is, you know, I had a long day. This is ridiculous. You want to style her? You want to like, that's fine. So her and Danielle Bernstein hung out in our studio and in our warehouse for a few hours that night. And it turned out to be a very valuable relationship over the years. As she grew her blog, you know, our, our, business grew we did a collaboration of flannels with emojis printed on the back that ended up in bloomingdale's and every like over 20 stores i think countrywide 50 stores but no big deal. 50 stores no big deal. <laughs> but yeah the relationship has been wonderful and uh danielle has been good to us and uh we're grateful yeah, like grateful for her support and then one influencer sort of leads to another i would think like naturally or just it, like your brand value just like went up yeah so, and it also like she helped us when we were really starting to do pop-up shops right in different locations she helped us activate those locations so right. other influencers she, did too but she kind of if she came and you know posted then her new york following knew where she was and where she was getting her vintage and then you know, it, it, uh, we're on more customers in the door. Right. And we're also, you know, at this point in the heart of Soho and people love vintage clothing and there's not much other game in town unless you're willing to go to Brooklyn, which is fine. A lot of people that have supported us that have a following uh, just stumble in the store. And it was really just Samantha and I for a long time running the registers ourselves and the sales and floor. Morgan and Gus ran the register. And so we, I, Gus is their dog. We inevitably made these relationships organically and still do. And how big of a impact do you think social media like has on your business now? I would say a massive impact. Uh, I think it's played a crucial role in growing the business. It really was crucial. We could never have build the business that we built without social media right. because the nature of our business was we were always moving and because we were able to activate stores in all different parts of new york obviously we got a lot of foot traffic that way and that's how you know so it wasn't just like one neighborhood you know it's like we have like this magic trick people see see me and they haven't seen me around they're like 
oh my god u.s stores everywhere it's crazy do you have like 20 stores and we're like no there's just three but it feels that way because we're always moving like right around the corner or and it right. and maybe the sign stays up a little longer so it just like feels like the stores are all over right and we the, the three stores or two of the three are extremely close in proximity so it just feels like they're all over right um, and so like for, so you were living in Michigan like a year or so after graduation and then you guys moved out to Long Island with the warehouse when you were building the business. Yeah, so let me speak to that a little bit. So um, we thought the website was going to launch. We got screwed by a, our development company and it became apparent that we were not close to launching. And our father has warehouse space out on Long Island and he is basically a jobber. So he buys like last season's goods from, it's a fourth generation family business from Macy's and Federated and repackages them and sells them to places like TJ Maxx and Ross and Marshalls. So he sells like 10, 20, 50,000 of one SKU. And we sell one of one SKU. So like he actually thought we were insane. So he wasn't exact, like he supported us by like giving us business advice when we needed it. But we were very much on our own in terms of... In, in terms of investing and growing the business. And, like, when it was time to open a warehouse after college, we said, you know, can we have a little warehouse space? Mm-hmm. He has, like, a lot of warehouse space. Um, and the answer was no. And eight months later, we showed that we were, you know, serious about it. And we hired all these employees and did X, Y, and Z. And he gave us a little corner of one of his warehouse spaces. There was no light, there was no bathroom, no heat, no air conditioning. And that's where we worked for the next couple of years. I remember that. I think I visited you guys once out there. Um, but my question is, like, being in Michigan and then being out on Long Island, and, you know, when everyone, all of your friends are in New York and doing all yeah. these things, like, and you were working these crazy hours, focusing on the business, like, was any part of you, like, you know, how am I going to meet someone? Like, how I'm not having a social life. Like, we're- well, I'll, I'll intercept here. So Samantha, I introduced Samantha to her husband uh, through a friend of mine, probably in 2012. So, so basically, by the time the two of us started working together full time, she had already been with Steven and yeah like when we moved back to New York um I think it was like May or something of 2012 I started like seeing Steven pretty regularly and yeah until like now uh so for those six years or I guess at least four of the six years that Samantha and I lived together and she was nearly engaged and I was just coming out and very single it was extremely challenging for the two of us uh living together and working together and you know samantha's a workaholic which is wonderful because i think she channels a lot of her productive anxiety through work which benefits me which is great (laughs) um but in the same breath you know when we would get home at nine o'clock doing a reverse commute from the warehouse on long island back to the city and we're in a one-bedroom split with a wall up and she has her fiance coming to sleep over and i'm getting ready to go out for the night she's like wait what are you doing and i'm like I'm 21. Uh, I need. I need to live. Right, because the two right. of you are very different. 
No, I mean, I always say, like, it's our, people say, what's your biggest challenge in business? And we're pretty honest in working with each other. But it's also, like, some of our biggest benefit. Right, our skill sets complement one another, and that's definitely a major up for us. It's our biggest weakness and our biggest strength. So, Samantha, as someone who went to business school, yeah. thinking if, like, someone's listening and they want to start a business but they feel like they don't necessarily have – like, do you, how much do you think that helped you and how much do you think was just you being sort of, like, naturally predisposed to that because of your dad or – Okay, so, like, I did – I was taking an entrepreneurship course and, and, of course, I used the Vintage Twin as my project. And finally, the business world has come around to this. Like, you don't need a business plan. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Like you cannot plan the trajectory of your business. First of all, 99% of businesses pivot. We pivoted. We were supposed to be an e-commerce giant, and we became a retailer who hopefully will evolve into e-commerce. Um, but so I think like that was a distraction. I will say that like, I took a negotiations class. I think it was an elective. Should not be an elective. Okay, and I took. You mean it should be required? Yeah, my finance class didn't get me very far. You know what? It didn't teach me anything about venture capital. That's what I would like to know. Right now, I go home and I read books about venture capital and what it's like to raise money and what all these crazy terms are. I'm sorry, I don't need to learn about the intricacies of the stock market if I'm not going to Wall Street. I just don't. Oh, way more applicable and true there are courses now and i'm sure that elective would serve me now um but so how did it serve me and like accounting you know what didn't i don't need to know the skills of an accountant i need to know how to use the tools on the internet like these self-service wave you know zero accounting to serve my business like why don't you teach me how to actually start and grow a business you need to file a trademark you need to you know like practical implications of starting a business i i guess look i did a bba so which is a business uh uh, like a bachelor of business so it's an undergrad business education i guess you need a little exposure to finance and accounting to like know what you want to do but I would love to see coursework and maybe it's out there now I don't know that is really just about like practically on no budget how do you start and run a business right and then uh comparatively Morgan you didn't so I went to Northeastern for two years of a five-year program that was meant to be a work-study program uh the first two years you're in school I was a minor in business major communications while Northeastern is a lovely place I didn't learn a thing and I well, school was never really your thing. No, it wasn't. But I do strongly believe that unless you're studying business, science, law, or medicine, something that requires a degree uh, or a specialty service, that schooling is really expensive and potentially a large waste of time. Any exactly. it, it, it's yeah. true. Obviously, if you need specific training and something, if I could go back, you know. I always say, like, I regret not studying computer science. Like, if, if I could code, God, the things I could do for my business. But if I could code, then I would be up all night coding and not right. 
thinking about how to grow the business. And I believe that like that's why that's like the ultimate concept of division of labor and like right. specialization of labor. Someone I mean sure I could learn to code, but like someone's probably better suited for it than I am and I'm probably better suited for like thinking about the business on a macro sense. And like the skill sets that I bring to the table, like knowledge of Photoshop and minimal graphic design work and photography were all learned in high school. I didn't learn a thing in college and I did, so I transferred to North, uh, to Parsons for a semester after the two years at Northeastern and none of my, uh, credits transferred. So they put me in as a second semester freshman when I was supposed to be a junior so here I am, a uh, second semester freshman at Parsons, and I'm in the dark room, and I'm like, guys, like, I, 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 like, there are digital cameras now, you know, like, what am I learning? I didn't finish the semester, and I don't regret a minute of skipping the rest of it because the things that I did need to learn to contribute to the business were largely learned in building the business, and in high school okay but I will say like we went to just have like a sit down about like let's really discuss our core values and like Morgan's like this is ridiculous why are we talking about like our core values this is pointless we have work to do like if she maybe had some of the business courses that I did that make you understand that like everything you do for your business really needs to be consistent with your core values, maybe she would have participated yeah, I in would that love, exercise. Yeah, I would love, yeah. it, it was actually interesting, I just spoke to somebody that took a design course at Parsons. Like if there were about pretty much how to start your own line or how to start your own business, if there was a condensed course like that, that you know or Two not weeks. even if there was yeah if there was you know but really even if there was like a year's course or 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 six month course or something condensed that really just outlines you know how to file a trademark establish yourself as an llc you can benefit obviously there are benefits to be had from education obviously morgan didn't okay. <laughs> i mean i see you know, valuable. Sure. Yeah, I yeah, definitely yeah. see uh, um, yeah. both sides. Look, and I, what's the moral of the story? Find the right program. Like Ross was a, an amazing program for me. Mm. I, I wasn't. I applied to two schools. I applied to Wharton and Ross. Funny story. Ross, the preferred. They, you're. You can apply to the business school as a high school student, and they only accept like fifty kids around the country. Um. So I applied for this preferred admission program, and they rejected me. And it was like, it was insane. I was I the perfect, no, they rejected me. I was the perfect candidate. My guidance counselor knocked on my door. She said, this is ridiculous. We're appealing. I mean, you can't appeal in right. decision. Everyone would appeal. Sure enough, we appealed. And I was the first case in the history of the Ross School of Business to be overturned. That is, that's incredible. Yes. <laughs> I applied sophomore year and they I didn't get in. I feel I like I should never gotten in. I should have. I should have appeal. If I rolled over and said, "Okay, fine, I'll go to LSNA and I'll apply as a sophomore," never would have gotten it. Right. I mean, I also think um, I'm not business minded at all. I was just very <laughs> right. lost and was like, "This feels like a smart decision." Um, um, as far as school, like one of the skills I, the classes I think about all the time is 
Um, it was a course called LHC, and it was just like business communication, mm-hmm. how to write a concise email. That's interesting. Just being like succinct and getting what you want out Literally, of the person. And the exams were what is the most succinct version of the sentence how can you shorten the sentence and it was literally taking one word at a time and making it shorter and shorter i use that skill and think about that class every single day and we use that you know i'm not allowed to send emails before writing them by samantha because there's a lot of extra words in there and morgan has her own opinions about punctuation just saying so so i have a, a question that um isn't totally related but growing this business, you know, f- two females, at, at any point did you feel like you were at um, like some sort of disadvantage? People weren't taking you as seriously purely because of your gender? And um, age maybe too. Okay, so it's funny because, look, I, we basically created the pop-up shop. Um, the middle-aged Jewish wealthy male landlords of New York City who had these empty retail spaces that I was looking at and thinking like you have no one in there why don't you just take my couple thousand dollars it's better than nothing they were you know talking to them and saying you want a 10 day lease you want a 30 day lease they wanted a 10 year lease right for a flag you know for like a flagship location and they looked at her like she was crazy and she knocked on 99 doors and 99 said no and there was one guy smart enough to see that you'd rather take so you really ask that many people for that pop-up shop right even to this day when we're looking at spaces we still have similar you know now it's at least they know the term they know and you drive new york city and you see space available for pop-up shop like i'm telling you we or we played a big part in that um and it makes a lot of sense obviously some money's better than not right and you'll see every other the rent's just unaffordable every single other storefront is vacant for a reason and so, so the short-term model just worked right i mean so anyway back to your question um whenever i finally met the landlord in person because i'm like calling and negotiating these deals from a freezing warehouse on Long Island and for all they knew I was like 45 you know and and I sounded pretty legit I talked to I have the license agreement ready to go I have liability insurance in place like I had my script I knew exactly what to say um and they met me and nine times out of ten they like kept like looking past me for like who else was gonna walk in right because you know for people listening you're a small person how tall are you Five two on a good day. Right, you're a small and I have a female face. I could pass for like sixteen. Right, and it was definitely there was definitely a shock factor. But for a lot of these guys, it was also like funny. They were like they couldn't. They were like humored by you. I was who they were negotiating. And then when the money started coming in, you know, and they were getting paid, it wasn't so funny. And and I had the checks that they asked for. Right, you know, the license was signed. You know, the insurance was in place. So like. What are they going to say? You look too young. I don't want to do the deal anymore. Right. Um, and then, of course, I maybe they showed me some favoritism because they thought I was like this funny. Well, look at this chick. She, oh, cute. she has oh, moxie. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, and if I ask for an introduction to like, even now, when I look at a space, I email like my five biggest landlords that I've worked with over the years and say, do you know this person? They're like your boys. 
Yeah. Yeah. And one of them says, yes, I know them, and sends a very nice introduction email. This is my friend Samantha. She's a tenant. Talk to her. But there are definitely still, I would say, the majority of landlords that are in such an outdated mindset that they yeah, still exactly. won't even consider anything short of... Well, the problem is they're 75. It's idiotic for them. millionaires if not billionaires, and... And they don't care if the space sits empty. For the month? I don't care. Like, it's just, it's not even worth their thought. They... And no thought to even, like, building culture in New York City, too, and just, like, adding and to, so like... That's, what, that's really what gets me in the door now. I say I activate the space. Like, because wherever we go, we go for these amazing locations we don't take like side streets we're like next to chanel and prada we say we will activate the space we'll bring people in it's not like a, a clark store opening like how many people are actually walking into like lacoste or or clark's next door like this is something different nearly a destination go-to when you're in the city and looking for but also it gets towards especially jeans so when your broker comes in to show this international firm to show the space to Zara, at least the source is going to be filled with people and not like crickets. Interesting. Alright, so Samantha is married and has a baby and Morgan is living the single life. Yep, yep. So how, Samantha, have you been managing kind of being a new mom, running, you know, obviously you have like support with Morgan, but seeing that you guys kind of do different tasks, how does that play out? So I took something resemble. Okay, when Stephen proposed to me, my we had a nanny growing up who lived with us for twenty three years. She came when we were a year old, and she lived with us. She taught me how to drive. She moved me into college. She came to every visiting day, graduation, everything. Mm-hmm. She's family. Um, and when Stephen proposed, I we had sold our big house on Long Island by then, and my parents had sold their house yeah, on Long Island. Thank you for clarifying that. And. Uh, Lydia went to work with another family for like a few years already and obviously they loved her. Anyway, said Lydia, you know, Stephen wants to have kids like as soon as possible. And, I'm and just she was telling 24. You, yeah, and I'm I was like, telling you, I'm not doing it without you. Samantha, like, I beg you not family. to get pregnant until 30. We made it to 28. I guess it was okay. <laughs> Two years off. Tell, tell your family now, like, there's an end date. And she said, okay, okay, okay. So like, but I started to think maybe possibly we were gonna try because I like it took my older sister nine years to get pregnant. My other sister is like has fertility issues. How many like, sisters do you guys have? There's four of us. We're the youngest two. Um, and I was like still on birth control. I was mm-hmm. like, this is like obvious. I, I had a little bit of a spiritual moment and said like, what am I doing? Thinking this is like my choice when I get pregnant like mm-hmm. clearly there's something else deciding who gets pregnant wait are you saying you got pregnant on birth control no oh, I'm okay. saying my I'll give you the whole story my eldest sister took her nine she started trying when she was 25 nine years later she had a baby after every possible treatment poke and prod you can possibly think of obviously a lot of money a lot of heartache and her mother-in-law was around all the time and watched, you know, knew me for 10 years and sat me down. She, I was married two years at the time, two and a half years. She said, Samantha, you know, when, she's a religious woman. She said, when are you going to have a baby? I said, you know, I'm not really in a rush. I work so hard. I, I'm only 27 and I'm, I'm just not in a rush. She said, 
think it's up to you? Like, you think you're in charge of when you get pregnant? Like, she didn't even have to say, look at your older sister. That's obvious. Um, and like, it really struck a chord. Steven would have started trying on our wedding night. Like, he's always wanted kids. Um, and, and he's your age, right? He's two years older. Okay, so he's, he's 30. 30. Yeah. It's like rare you hear a guy wanting kids that badly that young. Seems rare. Seems okay. special. And Seems that's rare. That's why I picked him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and to be clear, Morgan actually picked him. Like, literally met him and said, you're so handsome. I have a sister. And then, like, delivered him to me the next night. Like, I Great that. sister. I would have paid <laughs> money to see you on a first date, Samantha. I just, I can't. I know. Wait. Yeah. Same. So we didn't have a first date. I like date. Yeah. So listen, so the next, so Stephen came over and we were all like hanging out at my older sister's house. Okay, fine. Then the next night we had a big going away dinner with like my 20 female cousins and sisters and everything. We had like literally a 22 person. I think female. we went to like an open, what was it like? It was like an all you can eat. <laughs> and this was our going away dinner. We're going back to Michigan. And Morgan invited Steven and sat him right next to me. And that was our first date with me and my 21 female. That's so funny. Samantha. You could say Samantha owes me one. Yeah. So anyway, so we started thinking, okay, you know, maybe we should just like see what happens. Like let it ride, you know, start trying, you know, not not try. That's what I was right, saying. Right. I'm not not trying. Well, this was at what age? 27. Yeah, so... And we tried for about four months and got pregnant. And now we have Benji. Morgan, every week, was like, asking me, are you pregnant? <laughs> and, like, I didn't even tell her I was trying. She just, like, could sense that it was coming. Twin she stuff? Was terrified that I was going to get pregnant and, like, stop working and everything was going to go to shit. That's not what happened. Um, <laughs> Instead, we decided to delve into a second business, maybe a month into knowing you were pregnant. Yeah, but that's a whole nother conversation. But bottom line is Samantha was hard. Thank God I had a very easy pregnancy. Yeah. I worked all the way through at a certain point. I had to stop lifting boxes. But like... I mean, up until she was pushing on the delivery table, she was on her phone working. Yeah, and then like... Eight hours later, I was negotiating a lease with, like, Benji trying to, like, latch onto me for the first time. But but my laptop broke in the hospital. And I was like, okay, this is a sign. But still. I, got, <laughs> I, I, got it, I had my assistant come and pick it up and got it fixed. And then I got the computer back five days later, and it was even more broken. So, like, first of all, great assistant. Second of all, I'm just kidding. Do you get stressed? Like, are you like, I'm... <sighs> juggling too many things like do you do you have any anxiety do you, do you get stress any I of that absolutely struggle with an anxiety disorder morgan is probably like gasoline on the fire <laughs> and it's i the way i work through it is just like work stay busy all the time like what am i i've learned to not beat myself up for not being productive enough working all the time I'm like yeah right. I'm doing the best I can do um I started observing Shabbat so now there's 25 hours a week that's that I nice use my phone and then there's 25 hours a week that I'm in awe that you know right. she's unreachable. unreachable I mean in every way we're different including you know 
our level of religiousness or not. Uh, I say white, she says black. I mean, let's use this font. Let's use that color. It's never, it's never an agreement ever. So then at the end, like say you're deciding on what font to use, would you just, Samantha, agree with Morgan because she sort of has that visual eye for things? You would think, you would think, (laughs) but Um, no. We recently came up with some decision-making protocol. Okay. Rather than just like hashing it out into all hours of the night. So like Morgan, has it been stressful for you, like, you know, being in this business with your sister who is married and now is a kid and kind of has certain things figured out that a lot of people stress out about? Like, do you compare um, yourself? It's funny, like, I, and because my other sisters are also married and so, with children and soon-to-be children, I don't, I've never compared myself. I just have different wants. Um, I am not sure I want to start a family. In fact, I'm, like, pretty sure I don't. Uh, so I'm not in any, like, competitive rush or, like, comparing myself because my end goal is different. So... You take some inspiration. I bought an apartment and renovated it, and you yeah, it, and then you felt compelled to like stop renting and invest your money. And yeah, yeah, like there are definitely some milestones that uh, typically always came like two years after me. For me, after Samantha, I thought the marriage one I was hoping was going to come two years after, but we're still waiting on that one. But yeah, uh, it's interesting in that the time that she got pregnant and uh, gave birth to Benji that I was dealing with uh, this chronic pain that was misdiagnosed for five or six years as just polycystic ovarian syndrome, dumbing it down, cysts on your ovaries that cause extra pain during your period. But um, the pain began to be more than when I just had my period and it was all the time and I'd be in bed for a week before my period, a week of the period and then a week after and before you knew it I was like home often, working from home more than in store and that was another major source of anxiety for us and then we finally figured out just five months ago that uh, it it turns out that it's endometriosis, which is uh, basically where diseased tissue grows where it's not meant to outside of the uterus. So you're, you know, when you get your period, you shed your walls of your menstrual, whatever. Line. Yep, <laughs> or that. And instead of shedding it, or in addition to shedding it, it also is wrapped around your organs. So kind of like a vine, it grows and they have suspicions that this, uh, that there's evidence that this begins in like, uh, when you're born and, you know, only gets worse over time. But, uh, apparently it's one in 10 women that have it, which is a huge amount of people. I mean, to think about one in 10 women that you know that suffer from this and it's largely it largely goes undiagnosed because it, it's really only a surgical diagnosis. They, it doesn't show on imaging, no CAT scans, X-rays, MRIs, nothing. So my gyno never caught it, and I never heard the word endometriosis until six months ago uh, well, like, from a physical therapist. Doesn't. 
Right. They put me first. They put me on birth control when we were in Michigan um, when I was like 21 to regulate the cysts. And then the birth control caused a blood clot in my colon. And I almost like died of an episode of ischemic colitis uh, when I was like 21. And so they took me off the birth control and then they didn't really have another remedy for what we just thought were cysts. And, you know, I had a ruptured cyst and okay, you know, plenty of women get that. But the endometriosis thing has been uh, really crazy in that it went undiagnosed this long. For 10 years and she didn't go to like I went to right. top of the line That's doctors, right? And I mean, it was I, I was always sick. I had pneumonia, I had strep, I had mono, I had pneumonia again. I had uh, chronic sinus infections. I was just always sick, always tired, always in pain. And then up until like the not until the last two years, well, I had a horrible bout of pneumonia a year ago and that's when my doctors were finally like well another story they let it go six days without diagnosing it in the hospital so while i was dying from pneumonia (laughs) they were finally like uh let's figure out what's wrong with your body and i was like well that's a good idea you know (laughs) like do it (laughs) are you kidding so uh finally i got into the right hands my gyno sent me to pelvic floor specialist pelvic floor pelvic floor specialist sent me to a physical therapist who is actually the first to diagnose or diagnose as best she could with you know whatever certainty she could without it being a surgical diagnosis which is you know basically internal examinations and not much imaging it's more of the internal examinations uh that she was the first to even speak the words endometriosis. She she herself had endometriosis. And then before I knew it, in the last six months, I've met so many women with it. And women who are not yet diagnosed, women who are diagnosed but can't afford the proper care, women who have gotten the wrong care so many times that it resulted in them getting a hysterectomy and removing all of your reproductive organs doesn't solve endometriosis endometriosis there is no cure but if you were to remove the reproductive organs and the disease tissue is growing outside of those organs you've removed the reproductive organs for no reason and so 21 year olds are getting hysterectomies left and right all over the globe and being told that that's their only choice and they're still in pain afterward. And then there are also, forget the hysterectomies, there are also tons of women who go in to remove the lesions of the endometriosis via a laser surgery instead of an excision, where excisions where they cut out the disease tissue from the root, but lasers just getting the surface of it. So these girls are getting one, two, three, four, five laser surgeries and still living in pain because... Because they're not... When you laser your hair, you have to get it. The bottom line is endometriosis is discussed for a half hour in medical school. And if your gynecologist doesn't pick it up, I mean, there needs to be more awareness. I happen to have gotten really lucky... Uh, in getting in with the group of doctors that are at the forefront of the whole endo what movement uh you'll see like on netflix and whatnot 
they're just starting to come out with all these stories um, and documentaries to try to get earlier diagnoses and more like uh, research so that they could potentially diagnose this sooner, like uh, through the blood, you know, through menstrual blood. And so there's studies going on now where women can actually donate their menstrual blood and if they're able to compare endometriosis menstrual blood to that of regular menstrual blood, perhaps they could diagnose endometriosis through the blood instead of a surgical diagnosis. So there's tons, like, my surgeons are at the forefront of that mission, and they're going worldwide on these, uh, these speeches, and it's all over the place. The, the Instagram community is massive. Uh, yeah, so at the same time that uh, Samantha was out of commission, I kind of was too, which was not ideal, and still am. I have the surgery upcoming on the 24th. So this whole time, growing this business, you've been balancing this, you know, pain. This what You didn't even know what it was. You were just sick all the time. Yeah, and I was really, worse than the pain was that I was just kind of down on myself, thinking like, okay, this is just, like, depression or physical depression or am I manifesting this, you know? Am I just being a baby or these bad periods? But, like, no, the symptoms of endo and of PCOS are, you know, it's a hormonal imbalance, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that induces depression. But endo, the worst part is the fatigue. And the depression is also, you know really really serious and kind of like beyond or feeling like uh samantha mentioned earlier an anxiety disorder i mean i suffer from alphabet suit you call add ocd whatever but the biggest struggle i would say at this point is the depression that just feels worse than usual because i'm in physical pain and because endometriosis is a way more symptomatic uh, situation than just PCOS, you know? Right, but at least you know now that you're not crazy and you're not, yeah, right. You know, at least you don't have to feel guilty anymore that you're like manifesting this pain that, you know. Right, just the diagnosis itself was a massive relief and totally affirming, like, to feel that I knew I wasn't being a baby and, like, this is the pain is real and we have to do something about it. And I can't even imagine. I mean, I get really bad period cramps and I always say like if a man had just cramps they'd be in the hospital like Mm -hmm. that you know thinking they were dying like I don't and so I can't even imagine it's crazy somebody so I have a one of my best friends uh lost her leg to TSS from a tampon toxic shock syndrome and she just recently after like five years of publicizing the whole thing uh, got in touch with the mayor who's trying to pass a bill in her honor uh, to insist that tampon companies put the ingredients and contents on the box like every single other thing you use or put into your body. Um, and the, what what the congresswoman said was that there's more research done on coffee filters than there are on tampons. And you know, everything, every product you use has some carcinogen or some toxicity to it. Something in it that's, you know, 
not necessarily revealed, but that you're putting on topically or you're ingesting. Yeah, the well, tampons you're inserting. It's like a whole and rave about TSS. Bottom line, our friend who lost her legs, she had the tampon in for ten minutes. Right, it is a myth that you need to keep it in too long in order to be Yeah, I thought it was like a 24-hour. Right, so a lot of a lot of people that heard the story after it went viral on Vice were, you know, we were like, wow, well done. You know, you lived to tell your story and it got around. But every day she still gets phone calls from mothers whose 15-year-olds are di- dead. Right. Dying, That's dead. The she was very lucky. She lived... She had prosthetics, like the shape. She had one leg amputated, lived in pain for three more years, had the other leg amputated, now she's running three miles a day. Right, and she's also begging people to listen. Like, even though the story got out, women are still saying, oh, that's the girl who left it in too long, or oh, that's not, that's so rare, it's not gonna happen to me. It's like, it's only rare until it happens to your best friend or your cousin or your sister or your mother, and I'm the amount of dead women uh from tampons is unspeakable so just having you know gotten a whole endometriosis education myself and then part you know they were like you don't use tampons do you and i was like no uh just the whole healthcare system specifically uh women's healthcare is just so wildly unattended i heard that um I don't know where I read this, but basically, like, you know, when they were doing all these studies, like, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, they did them all on men, just assuming that women were the same. And so now they're kind of going back and being like, okay, it's a totally different, you know, genetic makeup, the way your hormones affect you and all of that. And so they're go- going back and doing like all these studies, like, you know, fight or flight. Turns out women don't have fight or flight. That's a very male response. Mm-hmm. Women have like mm-hmm. stay and try to make the situation better. Like mm-hmm. women don't flee. It's not in our nature. Um, and it's all these things that we've been taught about how we are is really about how men are. Like they didn't do all these right. studies about women. Like they didn't think about like, oh, what's in these tampons? Right. You know, what's going on in the the female body it's like right. only and now are they first looking right. into it the original tampons were probably maybe harmless you know but now that they're mass, mass produced, produced and everyone's right. trying to make them as cheaply as possible we have no idea what's in there well you just have to buy non-toxic tampons at this point well so that's not it and that's another misconception is the a hundred percent organic tampons meaning that there's no bleach, no chlorine. I mean, how do you think they get them so white? There's so many contents in there that are just toxic, literally. And that's why it's called toxic shocks. Right. Your body goes into shock and your organs shut down within 24 to 48 hours. But, and that's also, you're, we're talking about infertility, which is, you know, such a huge issue and only a growing issue and we wonder, you know, the birth control and the tampons and the things we're putting inside of us. It's not just, you know, we were taught in school, put a tampon in. You just put it in. You didn't ask, you know. And when your doctor says put in an IUD or put in whatever, you don't ask. You just do. But if you're not your own doctor, like these, that you can't rely. Bottom line, you can't rely on the government to protect your body or a- anything you ingest. It's it. 
like it really needs to be a self-regulated yeah like this is um just going further into that which i mean this is a whole other thing but a friend of mine right after college was diagnosed with you know terminal cancer um she was sent home from sloan kettering they're like nothing else we can do you know get comfortable and long story short like she had this like specific syndrome that made the cancer worse whatever but she researched it she found a clinical trial like she got herself better and she realized like you can't depend on these doctors like you think they know everything but they're still human like they don't you have to be your own advocate and i think especially women you have with all of these things so many of these things you know it took you years just to figure out what you what you had right and i would have stopped i begged for a hysterectomy four years ago and i needed like three psychiatrists to sign off on it if i wanted it to actually happen if you're under a certain age but i thought that that was the cure and all to what i thought was polycystic ovarian syndrome and had i known you know like I wasn't educated, needed to educate myself. And like you said, you have to be your own doctor. And Don't you love that to get a hysterectomy? It's not that you need like three doctor's opinions. You need three psychiatrists. Like you must be nuts if you want to have a hysterectomy. You need three gynecologists. Right, right. Right, it's like and the meanwhile, mind. half of the gynecologists are letting the hysterectomies happen when they don't realize that that's actually causing more harm if you, it induces early menopause. So these girls that are getting their reproductive organs taken out are now forever living on hormones and there's also like tons of heart conditions and everything else that rely on your reproductive organs whether you have them you know functional or not i think the overarching message like for all this stuff is very much you have to be your own doctor i mean when she was in the hospital with pneumonia like if my mom wasn't like pushing them to do these extra scans. They brought me the wrong medications multiple times. Uh, they like, they didn't, I mean, at Lennox Hill, right. pneumonia went undiagnosed. Pneumonia went undiagnosed to go to Lennox Hill. For, for six days. And finally, when it was, quote, life-threatening, the head of pulmonary came in, and I was just getting worse. I to have seen a scan that my mom stamped her foot. Like the scan just accidentally got into the wrong person's hand who said, gee, those songs look pretty cloudy. And then like took it upon themselves to call a pulmonary guy. It was All right. And six days in telling me I have life-threatening pneumonia when you're in the best care, in the best city, at the best hospital, with the best doctors, it's you need to be your own, your own... I, you don't go to a hospital alone. A hospital is also not always the answer. Obviously, if you need immediate care, it is. But you can get sicker. Oh yeah, I mean it's a it's also a business too, yeah. and it's right. a lot of just trial and error, and it's trial and error with your life. So exactly, and these people are you know nurses are changing shifts, and doctors are good people, but they only have so, so much time to cater to each person. They miss something. They didn't follow up really scary yeah well i'm glad that you have it like figured out and that you're getting your surgery and to wrap things up like where do you guys see the vintage twin going in the future like just kind of like to end on a future thinking note so we will we're redesigning our website making it we're actually making it gender neutral um so it's not going to be like shop women's shop men's Mm -hmm. uh you're just gonna shop for t-shirts um and so we're ma- hoping to make a big push on e-com. We're just putting a lot more product, a lot better product. Um, 
So I believe the future of the vintage twin is e-com. If we have like five stores total around the world that are just like in major cities, that that's great. Um, but I think that, you know, we have a store on the Upper East Side of Manhattan now. And to me, that's like the ultimate success that these like fancy Upper East Side young moms dripping in diamonds and Chanel are coming in and buying like $40 really soft, cool that, that all their friends are like, oh my God, where'd you get that? That's so cool. Right. Which by the way. Like, like, not Bloomingdale's. <laughs> you can paint, you can paint it any way you want, but like it's so old shit. It's branded, it's treated, we made it extra soft and really cool, but it's still someone's old shit. So these Upper East Side ladies like walking around and someone in my old shit is really, I think the that's what the brand's all about. Like normalizing and making vintage secondhand clothing more accessible. Picking vintage for those who can't pick it themselves or don't want to go thrift and that, you know, the vintage twin is picking it for them. It's not vintage, it's vintage twin. That's always been you know, the big idea. And one more thing is I know you guys uh, do 10% of your proceeds goes to a charity. I know you're always switching up the charity. Yeah. Um, what kind of was your motivation to do to do that? For me, that's just kind of a spiritual, religious thing. Like a tenet of Judaism is that the concept is basically like if you don't give 10% to charity, like you wouldn't even have made that 10%. It's, it's a requirement basically. And Morgan just kind of hopped on that bandwagon, you know. But it, it's Tikkun Olam. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, most of our customers don't even realize which we're working on, but obviously, like it's inspiring for them. It allows us like work work with sororities and plants. Right. Right. I mean, I think that especially with like you know sustainability and you know reusing old clothes versus making new clothes which is so bad you know right. for the environment right. and the water and more, all that stuff more and more people care about that right like, we're so far away from enough people caring like enough to like come here for that reason right Got it. they're coming for the look yeah but that's like an added benefit and something that is a unique selling point for you guys right so, i but... mean most people don't even understand why vintage is better for the environment that's how we're like we're lessening demand for new goods to be made by selling already made goods yeah well i think people don't even realize just how bad especially this fast fashion is for the environment right they you know it's they don't even correlate the two but it it's very bad for it yeah um all right well thank you guys so much for talking to us thank you we appreciate it thanks for having us and hopefully you guys will open up a store in la soon hey So that was our episode, episode 10. Thank you to the Vintage Twins, Samantha and Morgan, for coming on our show. And we hope you guys enjoyed it. We loved interviewing them, and we're hoping to start interviewing some more people in the next coming weeks that you guys might want to hear from. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it. Have a good week.